happened for us, how it is that uh, a, a people who can't quite measure up to what God is, uh, what God's desire is for them, how they can become the people that God wants them to be. And so the first 39 chapters, he's calling them to trust in him. And ultimately, Isaiah chapter 6 sums it all up. Isaiah 6 says that Isaiah stood before the presence of Almighty God. He acknowledged that he was broken, that he was an unclean man, had unclean lips, and he called out on the Lord, and the Lord uh, purged his sin. And then you have several of the prophecies that, that are in that first section of Isaiah prophesying about the coming of Messiah, that that Messiah would be the one who would provide for the purging of sin. Now we get into the second half of Isaiah, and you have Isaiah describing a servant, the servant of the Lord. And so the servant of the Lord for much of the second half is going to be the nation of Israel. But there are a few times in that where the servant of the Lord becomes personal, not corporate. So the pronouns change, and he starts talking about individuals. We'll see one of them tonight. Two times, Isaiah is going to talk about individuals who are God's servant. One of those is the Messiah. We'll really get into that when we get to chapter 53. And one of them is a fellow named Cyrus, which you may or may not know. And then the nation of Israel is the rest of the time. So as we work our way through, we're seeing this call. God wants what God's looking for corporately from the nation of Israel as a servant of God. And then these special uh, descriptions of a deliverance that's going to come for his people and then a deliverance that's going to come for all people. That we'll find as we work our way through. So in Isaiah 44, we're in a section. Isaiah now is, is talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit coming for the people. And so he begins in, in uh, verse 1, Isaiah 44. It says, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant. So there we go. God's talking about Jacob, his servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So we're talking about, he's talking about his chosen people as his servant. Thus says the Lord who made you. What right does God have to call Israel? What right does God have to choose anyone? Well, according to scripture, he is the creator. He formed from the womb. He's made them and he has made them with and for purpose. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, I will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now, anybody know who Jeshurun is? Just in case you end up in a Bible trivia contest, I'll be happy to let you know. Uh, uh, earlier, when we studied through the kings, you'll remember that we, we meet a young man named Solomon, right? And, and God had a special relationship with Solomon. In fact, he called him specially, and God gave him a pet name. God gave Solomon the pet name Jedediah, which means beloved. And it was just what God said, Hey, Solomon, I'm going to call you Jedediah. I want you to know I love you. In this instance, when he's using Jeshurun, he's talking about the nation of Israel, and again... It's a pet name. You see it a few times. 
sometimes in a negative sense. In Deuteronomy 32.15, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. In Deuteronomy 33.5 says, Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered and all the tribes of Israel came together. And then in Deuteronomy 33.26, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help through the skies in his majesty. It's a pet name God gave his servants, the nation of Israel. And it means upright one. Now, if you recall, most of the time when God's talking to Israel, he's not calling them upright one. Most of the time he's calling them bent over, messed up one. Right? But that's not how God calls them. God calls them upright. You and I can know throughout our, our lives following the Lord that you, we may know all our failures, where we fall short, things we messed up. And God's not dumb. He knows those things too. But he calls us beloved. He calls us by what he sees through the blood of his son. The Bible says we are just men made perfect through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he has this pet name for, for Israel that comes out. He calls him upright. And in the Septuagint, they translate this same word as beloved. So even in the Septuagint, you know, they acknowledge that this is a, a, um, a pet name that God has given his people. And it comes out, I think it's only in the Bible a total of five times. So uh, you guys for your homework can go find them all. Uh, then he counsels them, right? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Isaiah 44, 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the room of womb, and will help you, fear not. Now, why does God have to tell us to not be afraid? Yeah, Because we have a tendency toward fear, don't we? We have a tendency to fall back into fear. And we want to understand that what God is challenging us to is to walk by faith, right? And when we walk, when we follow the Lord, whether we're like the nation of Israel or individuals, doesn't make any difference. God is calling us to trust Him. Have faith in me. He's saying to the nation, I made you. I chose you. God's going to accomplish the work He wants to accomplish in them. So what He's asking for them, don't be afraid. Trust me. I know sometimes it'll be scary. He doesn't say it won't ever be scary. He just tells us not to be afraid. Put our trust, put our hope in him. He's going to, re, he's going to uh, repeat that again in Isaiah 44, 8. He's going to say, fear not, nor be afraid. And in Isaiah 44, 8, he's saying, I know the end from the beginning, so don't be afraid. What's he saying? I know how this is all going to turn out. I, you and I, we don't know, right? We, me, Jason, Jason and I were laughing again today about my goofy story. You guys know the goofy story? If you say you don't know the goofy story, I'm going to tell it again. Remember the guy, you don't know the goofy story. You will when I start telling it. So there's a, remember the old proverb, farmer, somebody gives him a horse and they say, man, what a blessing. They gave you a horse and his son goes out riding on it and he falls off the horse and breaks the See, You guys know it. Breaks his leg, and then everybody says, oh, it wasn't a good thing you got the horse. That was not a blessing. And the next day, the army rides through and takes every able-bodied young man to war. 
And then the people changed their mind. Oh, it was a good thing. Now your son didn't go to war. But the people who went to war conquered a a kingdom and came back with uh, just tons of gold. And then the people said, you know, it was a bad thing. It was a bad thing because your son now doesn't have a gold. And then uh, the the following week, a bunch of thieves came in and robbed all the gold from all the people who had gold. But the son who had the broken leg, who didn't go to war, who didn't get any gold, didn't get robbed. And then they say, oh, it was a blessing. And the point of the story goes on. I could tell that story for another 20 minutes. What's the point? The point is, we do not have the ability to know whether or not something is going to be a blessing or whether or not something is going to be a challenge or, or, or a curse in our life. Now, here, here's what God says. God says if we choose Him, if we choose life, if we follow Him, then life is what we receive. So it's all blessing. But you and I, sometimes we, we don't see the blessing, right? We just see the, how can that be a blessing? I got cancer. How can that be a blessing? I got, I've got an illness. I've got something hard that came into my life. How can this be a blessing? We can't see. But God is saying in Isaiah 44, 8, I know what happens. So don't be afraid. I know what happens. I have you. Paul would say it like this. I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he, God, is able to keep me. Can God keep you or not? That's, that's the question, really, right? Can God keep me? Jesus said that he holds us in his hands. And what? We have to be careful because the enemy will come in and snatch us out, right? Oh, and the Father is mightier than him. And what does he say? No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. So the endless debate is, can you jump? Well, I would just suggest, don't do that. Let's just abide. How's that sound? Let's just stay with him. Let's hear what he's saying. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he promises the Spirit. Verse 3, For I will pour out, I will pour water on a thirsty land, streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. So God is making the promise. Hey, man, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you're going to be dry like a desert. But trust me, if you're dry like the desert and God pours out water on you, that is so refreshing. It's so encouraging. It's so empowering. And that's the promise that God is giving about his spirit. Right? His spirit being poured out. Now here he's talking a a promise about his spirit being poured out on the nation of Israel. And in some sense that's fulfilled, right? In the day of Pentecost when the church was birthed, the Holy Spirit came, descended in power, and the disciples were empowered to, uh, to preach the gospel. And what we have today happened because of all those guys back then. But we still are only able to accomplish what we do through the power of the spirit. Otherwise, you and me are just broken, bent, messed up servants. We need His power, His love, His grace, His mercy. All of those things that God bestows upon His own. Verse 4, And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. So He's saying His people, they're going to burst forth because they didn't have any water. But now they're going to have water. The nation of Israel fails and fails and fails and fails and fails. Why? Because there's something specially wrong with them? 
No, they're just like us. And apart from God's empowering, we fail. We need His Holy Spirit. We need His empowerment. We need to acknowledge that that God's commandments are His enablements. When God says, hey, I am calling you to do a thing, do you think He's not giving you what you need? He promises to give us, just as He's promising the nation of Israel here, I will pour out my Spirit. You will spring forth. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will say, or another will call in the name of Jacob, Yaakov. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. The idea is he's saying the people are going to stand up and be acknowledged as we belong to the Lord God Almighty. And that's empowered by his Spirit. Now when the church came, when the day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. They were facing intense persecution, right? And they were challenged by Rome to take a pinch of incense and say, Kaiser Curios, Kaiser is Lord. And the Christians wouldn't do it. The Christians wouldn't do it. They'd say, no, Caesar's not God. That's what it means to say he is Lord. That we're not going to say that. And so what happened? Well, they used them for the games. They threw them to the gladiators. They fed them to lions. They wiped them out. But the reason they were able to stand up and say, I follow the Lord Jesus Christ, only one Lord, and is not Caesar. The reason they were able to do that was by the power of the Holy Spirit. The way we become the servants God wants us to be is by being empowered by His Spirit. And it's not overly complicated, just so you know. Scripture declares in the Gospels, if you want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, as long as you're a believer, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus said all you have to do is ask, will not the Father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks? Not a special prayer. Maybe a special desire that says, yes, Lord, I need you. Because I can acknowledge I'm bent. I'm not straight. I know you see me as a just man made perfect, but you and I know I got some problems. I need your empowerment so that I can spring forth like the, like the trees in the desert. Because you're the water that gives life. You're the water that empowers us to move forward. He goes on in verse 6 to talk not only about the promise of his spirit, but of his sovereignty. The idea that God holds history in his hand. Look, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. Oh my goodness, that is an interesting way to say that, isn't it? The Lord of Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. just want you to recognize, there is one... God speaking through Isaiah here and two persons on that in that line. Two Yahwehs. You have two Yahwehs in that verse. First Yahweh thus says Yahweh the king of Israel and linked to Yahweh the king of Israel is his redeemer. The one who will redeem. What's his name? Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of the angel armies. Lord of hosts. 
So you have two Yahwehs in one verse, one being described as a Redeemer. Yes, you're right. That's Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ before the Incarnation, being spoken of by Isaiah. Two Yahwehs. There are two Yahwehs, and His, and His, and His. There are two Yahwehs in this verse. What's He say next? He says, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Two Yahwehs, and then they are both saying this line. I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no other God. There are no gods formed before me or after me. I'm it. I'm it. There is only one Yahweh. Only one Yahweh. Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh, the King of Israel. And you have this phrase repeated by Jesus. Revelation 1.8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. El Gibor. The Almighty. Only used of God. Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not. I am the first. And the last. By the way, when we read the book of Revelation, it's a revelation of who? Oh. That kind of makes identifying this person easy, right? This is the revelation of who? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 22.13 is in red, if you have a red letter edition, if that makes you feel more comfortable. Revelation 22.13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These things testify Jesus Christ, our Lord God Almighty. Who is like me? Isaiah 44, 7. Nothing is like Yahweh. That's why we have a hard time describing Him. Don't stop sweating the concept of the triune God. We're just trying to reconcile what He says about Himself. Right? We're trying to reconcile what he says about himself. So we're saying, okay, this is what God says about himself. One Yahweh, and there's three different, and every other word I choose from that, it leads me into some problem. So that's why we say persons. Three separate persons, one being. That's what the Bible describes. I don't care what you call it. Call it, uh, you know, I don't know. A new apple pie. We'll just change everything and now you don't have to worry about Trinity not being in the Bible. You can make your own word up. I choose to say there's only one Yahweh. And you can't compare him to anything. He's incomparable. He's incomparable. There is no one, no thing, nothing in nature, nothing anywhere that is like him. Nothing like him. Nothing that we can point to and say, oh, that's him. That's like God. No, he is alone. Who is like me? He says, let him declare it all. Set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come. Is there anyone else who can tell us the end from the beginning? And what will happen? Fear not, don't be afraid, for I told you from of old and declared it. I have told you what's going to happen. The children of Israel know they're going into captivity. They know that's going to happen. 
And at the end of the verse, they're going to find out that the person who's going to let him out of captivity is a guy named Cyrus, who's not even born yet or named. But the Bible names him roughly 150 years or more before he's born. And trust me, the Medes and the Persians weren't reading the Bible to decide to name this guy Cyrus. Let them declare it. Are you my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Not one. Nothing like God. He is in control of history. And he has a plan for Israel, right? He says, I have a purpose. I have a plan. I've called you from ancient times. There is a purpose behind all the things that God is doing. It says in Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for what purpose? For my glory, whom I formed and made. That creation glorifies God. It glorifies God when when nations come before Him, when people bow the knee, it glorifies Him. It honors Him. It, it lifts Him up. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of Your hands. Man, God is moving and working. God is accomplishing He knows the future. We don't have to be afraid. We're called to trust Him. He made us with a purpose. He has a plan. We can hold fast to what He says. Now He's going to move on to discuss with Israel the reason why they're going into captivity, which is their idolatry. They have a problem with idolatry. In verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. They're not any good. Idols are not going to help. Their witness neither their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Why do you make something that doesn't work? Why do you cut this stuff? He's going to describe the whole process here in a moment. Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. It's just you guys. You guys who aren't all that straight. You're trying to make a God out of wood or stone or gold. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They will be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Idols are unprofitable. There is only one incomparable, incomparable God. That's Yahweh. Only one. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, right? There's just one name. There's just one. This is what God is declaring to his people. In verse 12, he describes the process. He says, an ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. Then he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. But does the idol that he's forming help him? Does it feed him? Does it give him water? The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. So they made themselves hungry. They made themselves thirsty, creating something 
beautiful that they could put in their house. In verse 14 it says, He cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. Is that not a little ludicrous? Just a little? No? A little ludicrous that I'm thinking that the other half of this log is going to answer my prayers. It's going to be the gateway for, for uh, God to hear me. <clears throat> Over the other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself. And he says, Aha! I am warm! I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol, then he falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. It's a little ridiculous, right? And that's the point. What is it that God is contrasting here in Isaiah 44? He's saying, look at me. I know the end from the beginning. I'm telling you, don't be afraid. I'm working in your life. I'm accomplishing things for you. I am able to take care of you and give you what you need to become the men and women you want to be. All of that is through me. Why would you run to a chunk of wood and carve it up? The wood you cut out of the tree, the wood you use to cook your food, why would you pray to that wood when the incomparable God is before you? Why would you turn to anything else other than to Almighty God? Look at verse 18. He goes on to talk about their lack of power. They know not nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, their hearts so that they cannot understand. You're not getting any answers. Now keep in mind, in the ancients, the thing of wood or stone or gold was not a god. It was a gateway to a god. You created the likeness of a god, you carved it up, you put it down, and then that became the doorway, the gateway, the you know ancient Ouija board to contact God through that altar. But that's not how you contact Yahweh, right? So Yahweh would say, no, no idols. No idols, no graven images, no doorways. Just come to me. Call on my name. Once upon a time, there was a Gentile woman cast out from Abraham's house laying under a bush, waiting to die. She lay her son, his name was Ishmael, under a bush away from her so she didn't have to watch him die. And she lay down. And the God who sees, that's what she called him, Yahweh came to her and gave her drink and saved Ishmael and helped them cross the wilderness and in the same time taught them both that God is able to meet our needs. We don't need Abraham. We don't need money. We don't even need big caravans full of water to get us across. 
We just need to know we can trust in God. And God's been showing that lesson since Genesis. And he hasn't stopped. And his word to the people is still the same. Trust me. Trust me. I'm here. I see you. I see you and I will work on your behalf. But these, they don't know. They don't understand. They can't see. Verse 19, no one considers. Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, well, half of it I burned in a fire. And with half of it I baked bread on the coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I then make a graven image that I will fall down before? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. For he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He's not making the idols dumb. He's making the people who made them dumb. He's closing their eyes. He's hardening their hearts because they're trusting in something else. First 39 chapters, over and over again, we heard the message, trust me, trust me. Remember the highlight? God delivered the children of Israel from the Assyrian army, the most powerful army of their day, in one night. God said, trust me, trust me. Yet they made idols. They continued to go astray. But before God says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make your, your you're not going to understand, you don't know, you're going into captivity, God's going to kind of cure some of their idolatry. But before all of that, what did he promise them? And I know it's hard for you now, but guess what? One day, my spirit's going to come like water on dry land. And it might not be you, but your children or your children's children are going to know the power of God to overcome, to be delivered. These are the promises that God is speaking through Isaiah to the people. They go on now. Think about what God has done. Let's turn our eyes from the idol for a moment. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel. For you are my servant. I formed you. We go back to that idea. I made you. You're mine. God made the nation of Israel. It's a pretty incredible idea, but in Deuteronomy 32, uh, is it 8? 32, 8? I'll have to look again. Uh, we have God disinheriting the nations at the Tower of Babel. So all the nations God turns over, and He asks the heavenly host to watch over them. Later on in Psalm 82, He's going to judge the heavenly host and say they're going to be judged because they didn't do a good job. And as he looks at that, and as he faces that, he says, Now, I'm going to call my own special people out of all the nations. And in Genesis 12, what happens? God says, Abraham, go to a place that I will show you. Let's go. And Abraham picks up and goes. And from one family, God builds a nation. They're my people. I formed them. I made them. They're mine. I've redeemed them. I have a purpose. Messiah is going to be birthed to the entire world through the people that God chose. 
All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through your seed, Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's looking forward, according to Paul in Galatians, looking forward to Jesus Christ. That he is the blessed seed coming through. Remember, O Israel, Jacob, I made you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, God told his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that phrase somewhere else before? We have Jesus promising, I will never leave you or forsake you. Here God is saying to Israel, I will not forget you. Are there times God puts them on a shelf? Sure. Did he forget them? No. Does he still have a purpose? Romans 9, 10, 11. What's, what's the whole point of Romans 9, 10, 11? Paul says, so has God cut off Israel just to throw them away? And then Paul says, certainly not. It's in that section where Paul makes this proclamation. All of Israel shall be Saved. So there's, there's a point, there's a purpose. Something is being accomplished. What was being accomplished in the New Testament, it says, blindness in part has come to, to the Jew for what purpose? For the Gentiles to enter in, to be grafted into the tree. And then what, what is accomplished because of that? Then we drive them to jealousy. If God cut off the natural branch and grafted in the unnatural, isn't it easy to graft the natural back into the natural tree? Look, if you're God, it's easy to do no matter what. If it's hard for you and me, it doesn't make any difference. It's not hard for God. He says, I will not, you will not be forgotten, but I will not forget you. Listen to the next line, verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. And your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The idea that Isaiah is probing into is this concept that I know we mess up, and I know we blow up, but there's a promise that God's bringing His His Spirit. And His Spirit will one day empower us to be the men and women that we need to be. But in the meantime, what is God promising? He didn't just tell the people in the Old Testament, you know what, I'm sorry guys, Jesus is not going to die for another thousand years, so you guys all got to go to hell. What did he tell them? He said, I'll forgive your sins. I'll cover your transgressions like a cloud. They're, they're not removed. Your sins like a mist. When do they get removed? When Jesus dies on a cross. It's future. But God's Provision is present. It's now. Jesus, it's, it's as though God charges their unrighteousness, their sin, to the credit card that Jesus is going to pay for in a little while. And he's telling the nation of Israel, return to me. What, you know what that word means, return to me? You know what? It's a word you hear a lot. Repent. 
In Mark chapter 1, what does it say? Jesus went throughout the, the area preaching about the kingdom of God and telling everyone, it is time, the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. Turn to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. What is he promising us? Peace. Rest. Grace. Mercy. All the things you and I ought to know we need. Because we ought to be uh, uh, self-aware enough to know I'm going to need something more than my willpower. I'm going to need something more than my own ability. I need Him. I need His blood. I need His grace. I need His mercy. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Not only did I form you, you're twice bought. I made you in your mind, and then I have redeemed you. And God uses the past tense for a future event. How can God do that? Because it's a decree. When God decrees, what does that mean? Is there a chance God's decree won't happen? No chance. If God has decreed, I, he can say in the past tense, I have redeemed you. You're mine. You're mine. I am working, moving in your life. Turn and turn to me. Isaiah 55, 7 says this, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him do what? Return to the Lord, that he will have what? Compassion on him. And to our God. Why? Because he will think about whether or not he wants to forgive. He might not want to forgive you. You may be uglier. Maybe you're worse than everyone else. No, it says he does what? Abundantly pardons. Abundantly pardons. God is constantly in the Old Testament calling his people, return to me, repent, turn away from your sin, come to me, I will forgive you. But the problem is, man gets so puffed up in his pride, he doesn't want to admit that he was wrong. Yeah. Somehow when we get married, we lose the ability to say that. I'm sorry, I was misled. Yeah, we're, we want to understand God's call. God's call beckons us. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That's... God decreeing an event. Hosea 6.1 Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us. For what purpose? That He may heal us. He has struck us down. For what purpose? That He might bind us up. There's an old story. I don't know if it's true or not. You know... If you go online, I'm sure you'll find somebody who says it's true. And if you stay there long enough, you'll find someone who says it's not. But it's a good illustration, I think. 
you know, that about the lamb that won't stay. And that the shepherd would go to the lamb who wouldn't stay and he would break his leg. And then that lamb he would carry everywhere. You guys all seen the picture of Jesus with a lamb on his shoulders? He'd carry that lamb everywhere and nurse it. Give everything it needed. Make sure it got water. Everything came from his hand to that lamb. Everything that it needed, it found with the shepherd. So that when the leg healed, you know what the lamb does? He doesn't leave again. Why? Because he knows the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He gives me what I need. And I promise you, I don't know, maybe you guys are different than me, but there was definitely multitude of times God needed to break my leg. God needed to get me on my back. He blew me up with six pounds of C4. Trust me, the little lamb was doing fine. You ever stand close to six pounds of C4 when it blows up? Yeah, that's a little different. But God had to get me on my back. And God loves me enough to do whatever it takes. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful because if he left me, I'd, who knows where I'd go. I'm crooked. I'm, I don't, of my own volition, want to run to the Lord. I always want to go the wrong way. I have to remind myself and look and, and taste and see that the Lord is good so that I'll constantly be moving toward Him. I need more of Him and less of me. That's love. And whatever suffering He allows in my life, is so minimal compared to the suffering of Jesus Christ, it's not even worth being compared. Isn't that what Paul said? It's not This present suffering is not worth being compared for the glory that shall be revealed in us. What Jesus Christ has wrought, man, there's nothing to be as, as beautiful as that will be. <clears throat> so, in verse 23... He's still shouting out his promises. Listen, this is God delivering his promises. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth in the singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. God says, I know you're a mess and I know you're not perfect. But one day, man, if you could see what I see, what you will become. Don't you know that's how God sees you now? I, I know that I'm a mess, but I know that that's not how God sees me. And I know that what he does in my life is making me into what God sees. For we are his workmanship. Right? We're his poema. His work of art, his masterpiece. And he's building and he says to Israel, man, if you guys could see you through my eyes, man, you'd be blown away. Return to me. Sing. Praise. Praise the Lord. He is the Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge Foolish. God says, there is nobody like me. 
Uh, Paul would say it like this. He makes the wisdom of man into foolishness. Right? The strength of man into weakness. The idea is that God plus anybody else is a majority over anything else. It doesn't matter how smart you are. I'm always blown away at how smart people say dumb things. You guys ever heard of Richard Dawkins? He's a pretty smart guy. I have I, 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 I couldn't even carry his vocabulary words around. He's got so many big, crazy, fluffy words. But I heard him in a speech make this declaration. Which on one hand is wise and on the other hand is foolish. But people were asking him about how everything began. And Richard Dawkins said, basically everything began from nothing. And everybody in the crowd started laughing. Because science 101 is you can't make something from nothing. And Richard Dawkins said, what are, all, what are you guys laughing for? Why are you laughing? I'm serious. Yeah, that's exactly what the Christian worldview says. Only the reason nothing became something was because God said what? Let there be. He spoke it. And it was. God is able. He makes the wisdom of man into foolishness. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. He doesn't leave Jerusalem destroyed, does he? Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Listen to this, 28, we'll talk about it next time. Who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. Cyrus. You learn about him in the next chapter. Who in the world is Cyrus? Well, I don't worry, he's not born yet. His mom and dad aren't born yet. But when they have a child, they're going to name him Cyrus, and he's going to turn the people loose. And God declared it. Because he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. On one hand, yes, you're going to go into exile. But on the other hand, God says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God knows what he's doing. There's nobody else like him. And he calls us to trust in him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can gather before you, Lord. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word, to delve into the riches of the book of Isaiah. Lord God, I pray that you would challenge us. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, we'd want to search the scriptures daily to see if these things be so, to delve into the depths of what your word decrees so that we might do what Hosea said, that we might know you. Because that's what you want of us. I want you to know me, Lord. That's what you said. I want you to know me. And I want you to be faithful to me. So God, may that be our heart's desire. As we trust you in the circumstances of life. No matter what they look like. We might think it's good. We might think it's bad. But we don't know. But God, you know the end from the beginning. And I trust you. 
For there is no one like you. So God, we thank you for this evening and this opportunity to worship together. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You unravel me with the melody you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies until all my fears are gone. And I